Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to episode 162 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings. And 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. On this episode, I'm joined by Ian Stone, a man who is not only an award-winning stand-up comedian, he also happens to be a broadcaster and podcaster and yes, he's an award-winning one at that, damn it. In 2020, he published his first book, To Be Someone, a memoir about one teenager's obsession with the jam. Paul Weller commented, I really like this book. I'd forgotten how shit it was in the 70s. Let's get into it. Ian Stone, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Dan. Nice to see you. I'm really looking forward to digging into the memories of this band, particularly the jam who you absolutely love and the book to be someone, which is a, a real treat and a real delight to, to read because obviously coming from you, it's, it's comedic. It makes you laugh, but it's really emotional. It's packed full of so many memories of the time. So much of you in there and your story, as you'd expect, I suppose. I wanted to make it true. Basically, I wanted to make it a real story and, and it takes place between when I was 13 and when I was 19, there's a lot of emotional development going on there, shall we say. <laughs> so, so, uh, and, uh, and I, and obviously Paul Weller and the jam helped with that. That's a, a very emotional time, isn't it? For any person growing up. So I just wanted to write it down and, and, um, yeah, as for the comedic side of things, I can't help myself, can I yeah. really? I, yeah. I, uh, I, I like people laughing. I do. Um, so yeah, no, I, I enjoyed, well, I was going to say I enjoyed the writing process. I wouldn't, it's not necessarily true. There were a couple of days when I, I really just got lost in it, but quite often you, you have to work. You have to drag it out of yourself, especially if you're talking about stuff that is upsetting. And, and there's certainly times where you think, I, I think your, your mind just going, no, I don't want to go there. I do yeah. not want to go there. And you sort of have to force yourself down these roads, but I'm glad I did. And people have been very nice about it. It's such a discipline, isn't it? Creating a book because there are so many distractions and it'll be the same writing comedy as well. There's so many distractions these days. You'll sit at the computer and suddenly things are popping up, you know, then your mobile phone messages will go or whatever. It's very easy to just kind of be distracted somewhere else. Whereas you need to get in the headspace to get these memories out of your head and to actually, like you say, do the work. It doesn't write itself, does it? I, will, I often wonder whether Victorian writers felt the same way when they're sitting oh there's too many distractions a bloke riding past and a penny farthing there and the housekeeper has got to go through the books i don't know i mean obviously there are a lot of distractions social media and what have you but um if you want it enough if you want to if you are, are are desperate and i think there is a certain desperation involved to to write something down and to tell a story which is what I mean, I was watching, I was sitting home last night watching Master and Commander for about the hundredth time, right? I think it's an absolutely wonderful film. And it's Peter Weir, right? It's Peter Weir who directed it and who did the Truman Show as well and Gallipoli. And my missus said to me, why do you love it? And I said, it's the storytelling. It's the storytelling. I love great storytelling. And I think we all do. And, and so that's what you're aspiring to. And if you really, really want to tell a story, you know, you'll find the time. 
Yeah, and you'll and you'll get rid of those distractions. You know, turn the mobile phone off, shut yourself in your pit, and get on with it. Get <laughs> off your ass, and or get on your ass, in fact, and get on with it. And that's um, yeah, I managed to do that. No, it's not easy though. You're right. I I am. It's a struggle. Uh, and anyone who manages to do it has my utmost <laughs> including me. Yeah, you have your own utmost respect. To have a physical thing in your hand like this is, like, and it's got your name on it, it's like pages right. and stuff. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's a bit like yeah, the yeah. vinyl record for a musician, that physical thing you can hold. Yeah, well, I imagine if that's changed a little bit now, you know, because it, it maybe doesn't feel quite the same way when you, you're looking at your Spotify downloads and uh, it's slightly different from actually having the vinyl record and opening it up and reading that, you know, the pictures that you've taken. And But yeah, it's it's a nice thing and I'm glad I got it down because it's a good story to tell and it's an interesting time. Now, we kick off with, I first heard the jam when I was 14. It was on John Peel's late night show on Radio 1. I felt like I'd been smacked in the head. That energy, that power, that noise, nothing has ever come close. Not really, no. Not nothing has really ever come close. I mean, honestly, when Gabriel Jesus scored the third goal on Sunday against Manchester United, I don't know when you're listening to this, but it happened <laughs> four days ago from where I'm sitting now. That also smacked me in the head. And that I would say that probably came close, uh, to be honest <laughs> with you. But um, no, I mean, you're 14 years old. I mean, and music has the power to do that to you like nothing else, right? It's It's so powerful, so transcendent, really, uh, in the way that it affects your brain. Obviously, I'd heard music. I've heard music since that's blown my mind. But that one, that was a great moment. Also, I used to listen to John Peel a lot, and there were moments that were great. I remember hearing Susie and the Banshees for the first time, or The Clash, or so many different brilliant bands. But that particular song, his that that sort of flat Liverpool vowels, those flat Liverpool vowels that he had, and you know, in the city by the jam, and then that guitar, and it's uh, it was it was like being smacked on the side of the head, and um. It was a very exciting moment. And also, uh, I, I do think I say in the book, it's been a while since I've looked at it, actually, that uh, uh, my mate Simon, so he heard him before me, and then I heard that, and I thought, oh, this is the, oh, my God, they're brilliant. Plus, plus, it was the politics as well. Um, I, I mean, obviously, I had heard political songs. I'd heard Dylan, not that much at that point, and I was aware of the protest song. But to hear a song which talked about politics and talked about the street and talked about stuff that I could relate to, it was uh, it was a big moment. It wasn't just me, right? I mean, it was millions. Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. You weren't on your own. It wasn't just your van. No, You're right. But no. I mean, and it's fair to say from that moment on, your hooks. I mean, it's, it becomes an obsession. Yeah, yeah. It, no, it did. I mean, I mean, I, I think I think that's the other thing, isn't it? When you you find an artist that you like, it doesn't really matter what medium they're working in if you find an artist that you like you go you know i've had people say to me oh i like your stuff i've gone on youtube i'm gonna have a look at other stuff and and that's all very nice and i think i think that's what happens so i heard them and i thought who are these people and i must listen to whatever else they've uh, they've come uh, they've come up with because i think it's great and if it's as half as good as this song and i loved it all and was it posters on the wall it was obviously all the magazine presumably the jam badges and all that you know what well, uh, were there po- there would have been posters there were badges certainly yeah any time there was any time we was on the cover of a magazine when it was NME or possibly sounds sounds was a bit more pop wasn't it really than uh, than NME um yeah, you just you obsess about an artist, don't you? And you and you just want to hear everything they've got to say, whether it's musical or just interviews, because you're just trying to you're drinking from that fountain, aren't you? Imbibe that wisdom as you see it. I've said in the book. I mean, Paul was what four, five, six years older than me. I'm not sure how, how much older than me. Not much older than me though. Mm. And so that was a big thing for me because up to that point, adults had just seemed like aliens. You know, and and then suddenly, this is a guy who is an adult, albeit a very young one, but he's talking about stuff that I can actually relate to, and that that had not happened before. That's a big moment for a 13, 14-year-old, whatever I was. And at that point, there then becomes quite a bit of nagging to, to get to see them live, right? So <laughs> a lot of sulking, a lot of shouting you mentioned in the book of, uh, about wanting to go and not being allowed by your mum, right? No, my mum, it, it was a strange, strange rule, really, seeing as she let me go off every Saturday to go and watch Arsenal in all these far-flung places around the UK. You know, so I'd say to her, 9 o'clock on or 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning, I'm going to Stoke today. <laughs> We got Stoke away, and she go, "Bye, dear, have a nice day." And she'd have no idea 
of the danger I was putting myself in, getting chased by a load of Liverpool fans three miles back to Lime Street Station, getting knocked over by a police horse in Derby, getting into scraps and all that sort of stuff. And that apparently was fine, I guess, because <laughs> she didn't know what was going on. But going into central London at night to go and watch a band, no, no, no. So uh, odd rules, really, and I resented it. And I let her know. <laughs> uh, that I resented it for a year and a bit. <laughs> so she eventually, she and you see them a lot of times, so we'll talk about that, but eventually she lets you go. So the first gig was, what was their music machine? Yes, it was a music machine. Now, I believe it's called Cocos in mm-hmm. uh, Mornings in Crescent, just at Camden High Street. And um, yeah, December the 21st, I think, 1978, we broke up from school that day. We broke up, because I used to go to school up the road in uh, Jewish Free School in Camden. So we broke up from school, came home, got the bus down to Camden Town, went home, to West Hendon, got changed, and then out we went, me and Simon, and I think Robert Fraser, my friend, went along. I don't know who got tickets. Simon, I think, well, I got tickets, and we went, and it was a late-night gig as well. Simon's mum came to pick us up afterwards, which was very nice. We were only 14, you know, 14, 15. And um, uh, there was no there was no issues, apparently, with us going into a licensed establishment. I don't quite know. It was a much more laissez-faire attitude to uh, to uh, children and alcohol back then, I guess. Uh, but in we went, and we weren't the only ones, by the way, and we weren't the youngest either. Yeah, it was my first time. I mean, it wasn't my first time seeing live music because I've been to Rock Against Racism uh, earlier that year. We had the March... When and the Clash played, and Billy Bragg and um, Sham sixty nine. Weirdly, um, seeing as they had possibly the most racist following of any band, yeah. <laughs> I saw them as well, and I talk about that in the book. But so it wasn't the first live music I'd seen, but this was the first indoor live event, and um, yeah, I can remember. I mean, it's weird how much of memory I, 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 I've, obviously I've thought about this quite deeply and I've written about it in great detail in the book. So I've, I've dragged up those memories, but dragged, dragged or dredged. I think it was the mixture of the two anyway, <laughs> but anyway, I've managed to pull up those memories. So I can remember a lot about the evening. I remember, um, I remember the support bands, which were Jab Jab, who were a, a sort of rock reggae band. Um, I was listening to again recently, pretty good actually. Gang of Four. Uh, who had a song, um, something about a tourist. I don't remember a huge amount about them, to be honest with you. Uh, and uh, Shane McGowan, he was, at the time, I think the band were called the Nipple Erectors, but they then became Pogue Mahone and then the Pogues. And Shane was wearing a tutu and looked like he'd possibly had a drink. I mean, it's not a <laughs> stretch. I think that might have been the case. And then I remember so clearly that the roadies came on and cleared off the the last band staff and and then it was that very sort of stark just a couple of microphones and the drum kit and then the sign behind them the jam and then um they played a load of old soul classics they played um land of a thousand dances wilson pickett which is still just such a great song anyway and that voice and that energy of it and then john weller i didn't know who this was it's paul weller's dad walks on and went please welcome the best fucking band in the world the jam and then they came on and they started playing it's too bad I, I mean, actually, weirdly, I don't remember. I didn't remember this, but I looked up the set list when I was sort of researching the book and uh, they played It's Too Bad and I was about 10 foot away and, um, yeah, blew my tiny mind. <laughs> How did it compare to being on the terraces? Um, that's an interesting question. I think that word I use, that transcendence, that is it, is the word abrogation of self. You, you're not, you, you're, you're a much smaller part of something much bigger than you. You know, I still, I go to music festivals, I go to Glastonbury when I can, I, I go and see, I saw Blur in Wembley in uh, July, and I love being part of that, because it's, it's and obviously, I, it's so weird for me to say this, but I like being part of it, because it's not about you, and I like it being about me, obviously, but I think it's good for you, and good for the soul for it not to be about you, and obviously, even then, it is partly about you, because you're part of the whole event. You know, the reason that those gigs are so good and those football matches are so good is because you are committed to it. You are, you know, you believe in the story that you're being told. We're back to stories again, right? And um, yeah, how does it compare? It's, it's, it's a similar thing. I think, actually. I mean, not everyone goes for the football. There are even some people who don't really go for live music, and I don't, I genuinely don't understand that. I can't get my head around it. But um, yeah, it's a, it is a transcendent thing. And I like that feeling. I like being part of something larger than myself. I guess there's less risk of disappointment at a gig, right? Or like, or mass disappointment. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, I mean, I mean, there's more jeopardy. 
going to football. There's yeah. no doubt about that. If the jam turn up, and you know, I mean, if I imagine if, you, if I if I went to the jam gig and uh, and it was a bit shit, we left ten minutes before the end. Oh, we didn't, we didn't really turn up the day. But hopefully next week, hopefully next week they'll play their instruments properly and they'll sing. Yeah, no, it's a very. There is that. There is there is more jeopardy in football. There's no getting away from it. But as part of the fun, of course. Yeah. Of uh, course. Whereas with, with live music, especially if you're a fan of the band and they turn up, it doesn't really matter what they play. Uh, you're going to like the stuff, but if you're really into them, it's greatest hits, whatever, isn't it, really? Because yeah. you love all the songs, and I did love all the songs. Yeah, I've never really compared the two, but there are obviously similarities. But also remember, this was the first time that I'd been to a gig as well. I mean, obviously, it's not like... I don't think it's quite like taking drugs and chasing a high. I think it's a slightly different thing. I, I saw the Foo Fighters in... um at Glastonbury this year. I really like him, right? I, but I, more than that, I really like Dave Grohl. I like I like him and what he's been through and, and 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 I feel for him, you know. And so to see him happy on stage and to see all these happy people and to be part of that and to sing along with the songs, it, it, it never really gets old, that, to be honest with you. And I'm, I, I might be one of the older people in the field, but I don't care. I don't care. I'm happy there. And I, and I think that feeling has stayed with me from when I was 14. So now, uh, I mean, I will say this, that if, if uh, Paul and the boys ever did reform uh, and I was watching them, that would be a different level of happiness. I think. <laughs> they must uh, have had big offers, you know, so I mean, it's all, the, all the talk about Oasis getting back together and the big offers, they, they must, there must have been big offers for those, the three of them to get back together. Yeah, I know, I'm sure there were, but what was interesting in the documentary, I remember watching a documentary that was on Sky, I think, and they asked them and Bruce and Rick both went, yeah, you know, well, you never say no. And Paul said, no fucking way. That's what he said. And there was something very final and, and definite about it. And weirdly, I sort of got it, you know, because can you imagine them standing there at 65 playing when you're young? I mean, it would just be weird, <laughs> wouldn't it, really? So I, I, um, you know what? He doesn't want to do it. And he's always been one to sort of look forward and what's next and all the rest of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, fair play. I'd love to see him again, but I saw him with Blur the other week. It was nice to see him. Yeah, of course. Yeah, he was supporting, wasn't he? Uh, he was, was. And that was, yeah, I didn't get to go to that gig, sadly. I had a clash. You could tell it was one of those gigs where just everybody came together. It was a really emotional moment for the band, um, a real community spirit and just everybody singing the new songs, the old songs and just loving Lovely. every second, right? Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. And it was great to see Paul beforehand. It really, really was. So, uh, yeah, no, a little added bonus, you know. Now, you mentioned in the book about the jam also introducing you to new bands to or to other bands, bands like the Kinks and the Small Faces, new to your ears. Yeah, I mean, I think it might be different now because you've got Spotify playlists and, and there are, if you like this, you might like this uh, on the algorithms, whereas it was a bit more you had to search around a little bit. But I remember uh, buying David Watts on a single, uh, on vinyl, obviously, and, um, and seeing that it was written by... Uh, Ray Davis and possibly his brother as well, but I can't possibly Dave. But anyway, Ray Davis. And I thought, who, who's that? Who is that? And then, uh, so then I find out about the kinks and I remember I'm, I, I definitely heard them before. I'd heard Waterloo Sunset on the radio, but I'd never really made the connection. So I think that is how you discover stuff. I like that way of discovering things. And it wasn't just, I mean, I've read various people talk about the jam and how. And Paul introduced them to poetry for the first time. You know, there were certain bits of poems that he might have quoted or used in some way. And kids from my background, working class kids who might never have listened to that sort of stuff, suddenly had their eyes opened. And I think that's, you know, you hear, you hear different artists from various sources. And if you're lucky, you find artists that you like. But I suppose if you're listening to an artist that you really like and he or she says, oh, well, this is great, you're going to go, oh, well, I'll, I'll listen to that then. You know, you might have a slightly different reaction to it. But yeah, obviously I heard the kinks. And I'll say it, it was so, I remember my, one of my kids, because I when I had kids, I was very keen. Have you listened to this? Oh, listen to this. Listen to this. And there was a point where I could see them getting pissed off. Going, all right, all right, Dad. Listen, we'll find out for ourselves. And I thought, yeah, fair enough. And then when I was when when my eldest was about fourteen, he said to me, "Dad, do you know a band called the Kinks?" I went, "I do, son. I do know the Kinks." And I and then we sat there and listened to Eight Man and listened to Waterloo Sunset and and uh, they're great songs. So and it's nice to introduce your kids to that sort of stuff. But Paul 
Like I've, I've said it in the book quite a lot. It was like a big brother to me, and he that's what he was doing for me. Yeah, you talk about how, um, I mean, it's fair to say, you, I think you idolised Paul. You talk about how it felt like he'd rummaged around in my head, taken my hopes and dreams and turned them into stories with his songs. Did I say that? <laughs> Sorry, you know, you hear, it's funny when people quote stuff back, and I have no recollection of writing that at all. But yeah, well, that it did feel like that's, that's what he'd done. Really, that's what he'd done. He, he, it, it was, it was a an adult, as I say, understanding what's going on in my head, and 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 that that didn't happen up to that point. Certainly not with my parents or any of my relatives. I don't know. Also, is is whether sometimes you listen to music and it's just the um, the sound of it and the sound of the words and the, you know the kind of song that you sing along to. But actually, it seems like at such a young age there, you're really connecting with actually what he's saying. The power of the lyrics is really important. And I guess that, that comes back to the, the, the love of the written word and things that we've talked a little bit about. But, but the, you know, the words he was selecting, the stories he's telling really meant to me. Like you really properly consume that. And, and, and every jam fan seems to be the same. Yeah, and it, I suppose the interesting thing in terms of my, the way I listen to music is I I didn't always listen to lyrics. I would often phonetically know lyrics without having really a clue what they were talking about. But with Paul's lyrics, I did listen to it and I did pour over it. And I mean, what was the song? Look, you know what happened. Um, standards on, uh, on the second album. Look, you know what happened to Winston, right? And I'm like, who's Winston, right? It's Winston Silcott, right? And so I found out a little bit about that through Paul's writing. Bring forward them six pigs, we want to see them swing so high. I remember that lyric as well. Finding out about these six coppers and what they'd done, what they allegedly done. Yeah, I was listening really hard. I mean, also, if you listen to a track a thousand times, things do seem tend to seep in. <laughs> but the so, fact that you're then wanting to go away and research what that means because you don't quite understand it and want to find out more is it's not you don't get that with a, I mean I didn't get that growing up in the you know in the 80s late 70s 80s listening to Madonna you know no I know I think um no I did I mean I've done it with other artists you know Dylan I'd listen to Dylan and and I'd feel the same way um I do if I yeah, I'm not even going to say if they're serious artists because Madonna's a serious artist. Of course she is. It's just some people lyrically appeal to me more than others, I think. You saw the band quite a lot live after that 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 first time. I think you say 32 times around the country. In the yeah. Film. So you're traveling all over with your mates. Yeah. I I mean, weirdly enough, I, I was saying to you, I did a gig in Paris the other night and uh, I saw them in Paris as well. Uh, that was the only overseas trip I took. But yeah, I, I did. I traveled all over the country going to see them because... Uh, it's not enough just to see him a couple of times a year in Hammersmith or the Rainbow Theatre or Wembley. You want to see him more and 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 see. I suppose there's a there's a little bit of you going. Does it? Are there loads of people around the country feel the same way about about this? So being in Manchester or being in Birmingham or being in Scotland at Lot Lomond Festival and being surrounded by loads of Scottish uh, jam fans and you go, oh my god, this is everyone feels the same way and it and it makes you feel. More, especially at that age, it makes you feel more secure in your choices, right? I mean, I've got, I've got total respect for anyone who is into really obscure art that only they and one or two others like, because I never had the bottle really to do that. Although I have to say that even if it was just me and my mate Simon who liked the gem, I would have been into them because I loved them. But as it turns out, it wasn't. So <laughs> there were quite um, a few others. Yeah. <laughs> there were quite a few others. And when you travel around and you, you know, how packed these venues get. Yeah. Plus. You know, and I was used to traveling about, as I said, because I was going to football all over the country. So it wasn't difficult for me. It wasn't, it wasn't expensive to get on a train. You know, I, I imagine I bunked the fare once or twice as well, to be honest with you. Um, so it wasn't expensive at all on those occasions. I'm sorry, British Rail, <laughs> but I'm sure you'd have spent my money terribly. So I really have no regrets actually when I think about it, but. Yeah, I travelled around and, and I was used to travelling around because of the football, so it wasn't an issue for me and I get to see the band. Yeah, and you're one of those fans who, I mean, this has come up on the podcast, as you'd expect a lot, the, the sound check, the fact that the fans are getting into the sound checks. I mean, it's amazing that, and I, and I, that would not happen now, I don't think. It's, 
things are too tightly controlled and all the rest of it. But I just remember being outside. I think it might have been the Rainbow Theatre one time and John Weller comes out and so we're all waiting in the cold about four o'clock in the afternoon and he makes us a cup of tea, which is, like I say, in the book, one more cup of tea than my dad ever made me. And... <laughs> um and lets us come in and we and I think and I, I'm fairly certain that it was the first time we heard Eaton Rifles was in that sound check. About hundred and fifty of us standing there thinking, Oh my god, and that you know, Bruce Foxton wanders out, hello lads. And and it and it, it's surreal to think about it. And um those things, that's a very real connection that you have. Uh, and Paul was always very aware of that. I think it all adds to what we now see as the kind of legacy, you know, all this time past. It's those little things just build and build and build so that your, your connection is properly like, um, you know, set in stone, isn't it? Yeah. No, it, it, I think it was really. Uh, I mean, obviously now it's set in book form as well. Uh, so, <laughs> so there's no hiding place. It's such a formative time in your life, I think. And, uh, 13 to 19. So I think that the friendships, they don't always, they don't always um, work out. But in fact, I got buying time is a song that I always loved because he talks about that, you know. And obviously, that does go. I saw a guy that I used to know, man, he changed so much and all that sort of. And you think, yeah, 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 we've all been there. But I've still got one or two friends, Simon, who I talk about in the book, and Warren, who I talk about. I still see them once a day. I see Simon quite a lot. It's nice to share that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You mentioned Loch Lomond. So this is where you and Simon and at that point, a new friend, Warren, who lovely yeah. to hear you're still mates with, go up to Loch Lomond Rock Festival in Scotland. Yes. Um, and you said it was so good, everyone stopped fighting for 30 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of fighting. There were, I mean, it was, youth culture back then was very much, oh, there's Ted's over here and there's mods over here and there's punks over here and there's skins and there's rockers and there's all the rest of it. And it was a two-day festival. And I think the day before or the day after, I can't remember, there was more of a rock vibe going on. Now, if you saw a leather jacket, you're having a, you know, you're having a pop at them. If they're seeing, if they're seeing a Harrington jacket, they're like, we're not having that. I mean, there's all those sort of, you know, is they skinheads or they suede heads? What's going on? There was a lot of that going on. There was quite a bit of fighting. I remember it being quite violent. Uh, some good bands on. I think the, uh, the tourists were on the original Eurythmics, Dave right. Stewart and Annie Lennox. I mean, what I remember about it was, I don't think I'd ever been to Scotland at that point. And then meeting a couple of blokes from Dundee and thinking, what, what is, what are you saying? I have no idea. <laughs> they let us share the tent because we couldn't put our tent up, which is very nice of them. But we really didn't understand a huge, a huge amount of what they said. I mean, I'm assuming <laughs> they let us share the tent. You know what? They might not have, they might have said no. We just bundled in anyway because they thought they said yes. Yeah. And I remember people throwing quite a lot of stuff at some of the bands. And yeah, fighting. But what I remember is the jam. I think the jam played start. That's, I think that was the first time I heard start. And it was 44 years ago. <laughs> oh, my word. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the book. <laughs> I say that quite a lot now. <laughs> about anything. Yeah. Was that last Thursday? No, that was 1998. Shit. <laughs> we had that the other day where I was, uh, well, Wildwood. Wildwood yeah. was 30, 30 years old. 30 years, 30 years. And Simon oh, Day on Twitter did a, he said, oh, this makes me feel very old. And I thought, yeah, 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, that happens more and more. What are you going to do? Yeah. Well, it's mental because I realized that was, um, the amount of, the same amount of time has passed from now to Wildwood as when Wildwood was released back to the Beatles, She Loves You. And uh, yeah, if you think when the, Be when Wildwood came out, if you look back at that, that would have felt like millions of years ago, right? About the same time period, right? Quite. God. And that's a great album, isn't it? Wildwood. 
Oh, yeah, that's great. great. Absolutely fantastic. And I listened to a bit of that on the uh, uh, on a journey the other day. Just popped up. It's lovely to hear. And your love of Weller has never gone away. So we'll talk more about the jam in a second, but we should touch on the solo stuff and the style counts on that. This has continued all the way through. I'm guessing not to that obsession. No, the- no, 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 no. And there was quite a period when I wasn't that into him. The Style Council stuff, I was still angry, really, with him for breaking up the band because I I needed, and to be honest, still need sometimes, angry guys on guitars. You know, I, I loved the way, I always loved the way he attacked the guitar. I genuinely did. And and I remember watching Jules Holland uh, one night and um, a guy from Blur did a song called Freaking Out. I can't remember the name of the... Uh, yeah, yeah, Graham Coxon, yeah. Graham Coxon. And the way that he attacked the guitar in that song, I, it really reminded me of Weller. You know, like he hated it. And I absolutely loved that, the way that he did that. So, so when they stopped playing the jam and suddenly it's a Stell Council, and I just wasn't ready for that. You know, I, I genuinely wasn't. So I just went, I'm not, I'm not having it. Obviously now I acknowledge that some, there's some absolutely great songs. Walls come tumbling down is a brilliant soul tune, isn't it? Really? It's absolutely brilliant. But uh, at the time I wasn't having it. So I moved on to other stuff for quite a few years and it's never been quite the same, but that's all right. That's all right. We've, you know, settled down into a, into a very nice, loving relationship, really. <laughs> and I know, and that's, um, listen, the fact that I really liked it and he gave me a quote for the front cover. I mean, that's, that's a lovely moment, you know, when he phoned me up, when he phoned me up, he said, I really like the book. I'd forgotten how shit it was in the seventies. And I went, can I use that as a quote on the front cover? And he went, yeah. And we've since sort of had a bite to eat together. And, and it's, um, yeah, it's just mind blowing, really. That sort of stuff can happen, and it's nice because he's obviously talking to me and asking me about the comedy, and I managed to control myself. I wasn't sitting there the whole dinner going, "Oh my god, you're Paul Weller," <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I'm a grown up, and 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 especially working in the comedy industry and doing a bit of telly, you get you meet famous people and don't get. And obviously, he was a big one for me, but I was thirteen, fourteen when I idolised him. Now it's just pure respect, mm. you know. And the fact that he can wear the same clothes he was wear he, he, that he was wearing when he was, you know, eighteen, I think fair play to you, mate. You know, well done. You still can do, you can carry that off. I, I, I've been through sort of in and out phases. Some of his stuff I like more than others. We talked about Wildwood. I absolutely love that album. It's absolutely brilliant. And I always said, and I don't know what he would think of this, but uh, this is how I feel. It felt like grown up jam stuff is what it felt like. It had a similar vibe to me to what the jam used to do, only it was a, a, a more mature, less angry, really, less angry artist, less angry person, but still with the same irritations and still with the same feelings. So, yeah, no, I love that album. I love that. You mentioned about Paul and the book, and mm. it was Matt Lucas who gave him the first draft. Was that right? Yeah, yeah. Matt. Matt's an old friend of mine, known him like a long time on the comedy circuit, and... um and so I, I knew that Matt, I don't know how I knew that Matt knew Paul, but I knew somehow. And so I phoned up Matt and I said, can you get, this is a very early draft to Paul. And he said, yeah, sure. And so I got, I, I printed off 280 pages, like a really early draft of the book and um, made sure it was all bound as well as I could. So it was as easy to read as possible, you know, A4 sheets. And then I, I, I was in, um, I go and see a dentist in Notting Hill. There was a shop opposite that sold quite fancy little cards. So I found a nice little card and really thought hard about what I was going to write in there as an introduction. And obviously it um, pricked something in Paul and he um, and he read it. I guess also coming from Matt as well. And then I'm getting screenshots from Matt, from Paul, Paul's text to Matt saying, I love your mace, but I'm going to call him up. And then he rang and that was a very um, odd half an hour. <laughs> I also want to know how the connection with Paul and Matt's come about. That's brilliant. I mean, yeah, listen, Matt has been doing very well for a, lo- a long time, you know, and, and who knows, some, some TV show. And um, I think I gave Matt his first 10 minute slot. Oh, really? uh, I think is I might he, have given him a character. Yeah, he was doing Sir Bernard Chumley. Remember Sir Bernard Chumley when he used yeah, to yeah. take the wig off? Yeah, and um, and I always loved that character. And uh, and we did a f- we did a few gigs together, and we got on very well. Yeah, two Jewish boys, I guess. I don't know, bit of a connection. And I, I know I work with him now. I, I do a bit of writing on fantasy football, so I'm still pals with him. Nice. And uh, I see him once in a while, and it's nice. And I know he was at the Blur gig as well. Actually, I know he went to the Blur gig because, of course, he was in the uh, in one of the videos. He was in was he in Country House or in? Oh yeah, I think right. he might yeah, have been yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. in one of the videos. So now Matt's been around a long time and knows a lot of people. And yeah, and, yeah of course, it's a slightly weird pairing, you'd think, but but uh, why not? 
No, I love it. I love it. Matt's got some game, hasn't he? The other thing I really like about the book is the fact that, so we're not just talking the jam. It's not just a book about your connection with the jam and Weller. We also talk a lot about the times as well. And I think that by the sounds of things, that's also the connection that Paul loves as well. There's all these snippets and sections around the fact that these are the the things that we didn't have in the 1970s, which I really love as well. But it was, I mean, they were shit times, weren't they? there was a lot of shit going on there was a lot of shit going on it was industrial unrest and and poor race relations and the food wasn't great and limited aspirations i mean i've heard uh ozzy osborne talking about black sabbath and you know the, the choices for them these you know young working class kids from the west midlands it's like working a factory or maybe join the army or that's about it Really, and that is how a lot of us felt. And I think Paul, with the lyrics, tapped into that disaffection and disillusion. So yeah, there was a a lot of that sort of stuff. But the music, a lot of the music was great. I mean, I did say I wanted to write a, a part social history, a part autobiography, a part letter to Paul Weller and the Jam. And when I tell people about the book, that's what I say. And the social history part of it was just as important to me as anything else because you want to set the scene, don't you? So this young kid growing up, this young Jewish kid, me, right, growing up in North London, what was it like around him? Well, this is what it was like, right? We had one type of coffee. We had one uh, instant coffee. That was it. There's no cappuccinos or any of that stuff, right? I mean, there's bits I didn't actually write. Uh, in the, uh, that I didn't even use for the book about, you know, we didn't really have health and safety. I don't, I don't know if that's in there. Well, we didn't have nut allergies. I mean, <laughs> we, well, we might have done, but we didn't know. You know, we didn't know. Friends used to just randomly drop dead. And, and I didn't, I don't think I put that in the book, right? But, you know, there was a load of things that we weren't really aware of. We didn't have, um, I mean, race relations, whether they're better now or not is an arguable case, I think, but. There's much more awareness, at least, than there used to be. And so I, I wanted to write about that stuff as well, just to, to set the scene, contextualise a little bit, if you like. There were two particularly I wanted to mention. So one was um, we didn't have much in the way of entertainment. So it was three channels and board games. I'd forgotten this completely, but now I remember back and you're like, oh, Christ, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and funny enough, we, we had a little holiday in, in Exmoor the other day on an Airbnb, and the kids were mortified that the television wasn't a smart TV. It was just yeah. normal telly. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, that was, we didn't have a lot of entertainment, you know? I mean, now they have, like, uh, FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. And I and I remember, I was actually, I was at a gig the other week saying, we didn't have fear of missing out in the 70s because there was nothing to miss out you know we'd like sit there and go what are they up to a number 15 same as us fuck all nothing at all there's nothing happening just watching one of the three tv channels that we're watching they're all going to turn off at 11 o'clock and we'll go to bed because there's nothing else to do now as you said there are so many more distractions so yeah it was a it was different also the other one i think i talked about i remember is that hardly anyone owned their own home Hardly anyone owned their own home because people wouldn't lend us money because they didn't trust us. They're probably right, actually, to be honest with you, because the state we're in. But at the time, you know, if you wanted to buy a home, you had to have like a 25 year relationship with the, uh, uh, with the bank manager, you know, no, no, his wife, no. And, and, and I say his wife because it was almost certainly a bloke who was the bank manager. And so most people, we just spent what we had. So it was a, it was a very, very different. It felt, I mean, in a, obviously in a real sense, it was an analog as opposed to digital time. That's how it was. And I wanted to try and convey that as much as possible. The other one I wanted to mention was male grooming. So he said, back in the 1970s, men bathed once a week. <laughs> well, my dad bathed once a week. So I'm assuming that was probably the same for most men. You know, they'd, well, whatever, they put some, a pomade or real cream generally in their hair, which is why you had those things on the back of uh, sofas and chairs, anti-macassas they were called, right? The kids are switching off in droves at this point, right? But anyway, <laughs> you had these things on the back of, uh, like the kids are listening, you had these things on the back of chairs because men would sit in chairs and lean back and all this grease on their hair would get on the sofa or on the chair. So you would put this thing down, which is like a, like a place mat <laughs> on the back of the chair. So it would all go on there instead. Yeah, male grooming was not a thing. Was not a thing. You just, I mean, once in a while you'd have a bloke like Jason King on the telly who looked like he looked after himself. But in the main, it was, I say, everything was was very, very different. I think my kids would look back on that time and just think, well, how could you live like that? How could you possibly? (laughs) But, you know, we used to go to football and go to rock gigs and, and it was a lot easier to go to those things, wasn't it, really? Because it was, I don't know. There's a lot of people didn't go. Now you've got to get on the phone in the first two seconds. Otherwise you miss out. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I mean, Glastonbury, you could just wander down there in the 70s, couldn't you? If you wanted, not now. You have to buy a ticket in October. Much less complicated back then. And you, yeah. so actually, talking about the male grooming thing, you talk about the jam roadies, which I wanted to touch on as well before we wrap up. These big hairy blokes, but also Olympic standard swearing was one of the other things I loved. That's right. That's right. I never really quite heard swearing. Obviously, I'm 14, so I've heard a fair bit of swearing, but not swearing like this, you know, and it, and it was really impressive. And I remember being at the sound check and one of the guys, there was one called Kenny. There will be jam aficionados now going, what are you talking about? Don't you know the names of all the roadies? And, uh, <laughs> Kenny, no, Wheeler, Kenny Wheeler. Kenny Wheeler. He's been Wheeler, on the podcast. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Kenny, right. Well, exactly. Kenny. But I remember him talking to a mate and they, and they both, as I remember, had roll up cigarettes on the go. And they both, they were big fellas and, and it's standard roadie gear. You know, of uh, t-shirt and and jeans, or, and um, you know they hump stuff about for a living, right? And they sort of made sure that the fans didn't get too close, unless Paul and the boys were okay with it. Uh, swearing at each other in the most beautiful, colourful way. I mean, I'd never heard. I mean, the sound desk, the sound desk. They called it the sound fucking desk, right? <laughs> and I, I just thought, is there any real need? Is there any real need for uh, for an expletive between sound and desk? And I just loved all that. And there was something about cables. I think I wrote, I can't remember exactly, but, um, yeah, it was, it was Olympic level swearing. And I, and, and even as a 14 year old who was at school and did swear on occasion, it was very impressive to me. I must <laughs> say it was very grown up. You mentioned John Weller earlier as well. And again, in the book, you say there was a period in your life when he was more interested in your well being than your own father. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but that was true of so many kids, so many kids. Like, he absolutely loved the fans, didn't they? Yeah, no, no, they, they looked after us. He looked after us. And, and um, it was, well, I mean, here we are, what is it, 45 years later, and we're still talking about it. And yeah. so it shows you how important it was to us. Yeah. The Brighton trip I wanted to touch on as well. So this would have been, what, 1980, I think. Yeah, I think it Brighton. was, yeah. Yeah, just after Quadrophenia came out, I think. I was down there a few months ago, actually. I mean, I still travel to Brighton quite regularly to do gigs. And uh, there's now there's a Quadrophenia Alley. If you, you obviously, we all know what happened in the alley. And there's an alley now that you could gawk down and go, oh, there's the ash in there. But yeah, so we went and it was a big thing. I don't think I'd ever been to Brighton at that point. We used to take family holidays in Margate. Essentially, it's where poor, it's where it's working class People from the south go on holiday. If you're from the north, you go to Blackpool. If you're on the south, from the south, you go to Margate. And we never, I think also because Margate had a sandy beach as opposed to Brighton, which was mm. uh, stones. And um, so we went down to Brighton and uh, it was a big thing for us, you know, for like kids involved in the mod thing, big fans of the jam to go down to Brighton and see them at the Brighton Centre. Yeah, it was a very big afternoon or an afternoon evening that. And then, and then obviously to top it off, being in the ground later on and meeting Paul briefly when we're getting thrown out and Paul goes no no these lads are with me and I mean you can imagine I'm 16 years old at the time and and Paul says that I'm with the band even though you know it was just such a sweet thing for him to do and that's that's the stuff I mean I imagine that comes up quite a lot on this podcast really that yep, that's yep. a connection and 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 that was mine but I mean I think all of us have got those stories but Brighton was a good um was a good day it was a really really good day yeah I love the idea as well of you all picking your outfits, so the parkers, the badges, before you're going out, you, it's how you look and, you know, and, and all that's a really big key thing too. I've got a friend, Ian Moore, who is a proper mod, right? I mean, I have to acknowledge um, he is a proper mod. He lives that life full time. And I'm definitely not as committed as him. Um, the clothes for him are everything. It's really, really important. And he has criticized me on a number of occasions and I've taken it on board. <laughs> you know, I absolutely no, 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 no. I mean, you know what? Some people, some people know what they're talking about, you know, and uh, and I, I and I'm absolutely up for taking criticism from someone who knows what they're talking about. But I still wanted to dress the best I could. I wanted to wear the right outfits. So you're thinking about the t-shirt, and you know, and I interviewed. I mean, a few years ago, I interviewed Paul for a fashion magazine. We spent an hour and a half talking about clothes or he spent an hour and a half talking about clothes and he can remember outfits from when he was seven, right? Yeah. He can remember actual things that he wore from when he was seven. And he, can, I mean, that man could talk about clothes for a week without, because I mean, I think pretty much every outfit, because we had about seven or eight pictures of him wearing different clothes and he would talk about the thought process behind it and, and why he wore these shoes with his jacket or whatever. Yeah, he loves his clothes. And I think that, 
to a certain extent, rubbed off on the rest of us. And obviously it was a sort of mod look, you know? So you're going to wear a Parker or you're going to wear a Harrington jacket. You know, are you going to wear the suit? You're going to wear the three-button suit, you know, the two-tone thing, whatever, side vents, I don't know, all the stuff that, that, and I, even as I'm talking, I know there might be people listening going, what are you on about? And I'm like, yeah, no, I get that. But we did try the best we could. And what badges, because we all had loads of jam badges as well, so they have a couple of jam badges on the lapels. It was important. It was an important part of the whole thing. You, and it, And I do talk about this in the book. It is a class thing, really. It is about class because... You know, a lot of the punk bands, not all of them, but a lot of the punk bands were middle-class kids playing at being rebels, right? And and so for them, Rebellion was wearing torn clothes, was wearing torn T-shirts and looking, I'm not saying a bit shit because that's wrong, but just looking a bit, it's anarchistic, isn't it? Mm, mm-hmm. um, whereas with Paul and the boys, it's more about looking your best, you know, present, it's like, a, it's like you know, over the, on the weekend, you get dressed up, you wear your Sunday best and you and, and that I think is, that's what the jam were about as well, wasn't it? And so you wanted, uh, you wanted to look your best for them as well. The book finishes in 1982. So that point of which the jam has split up, you would have been what, 19? There's a really nice theory in the book that I just quickly wanted to talk about where you said that when you're young, the band or, or artist that you choose to follow reflects your inner needs. Yeah, yeah. I was talking about the fact that if you're like, if you're not sure with your sexuality, Bowie might have been the guy for you, really. And and it, it did feel like that a little bit. Yeah, I'll stand by that. That sounds quite um. Like I know what I'm talking about, really, <laughs> didn't it? Really? I know. I think I think you you you're looking for artists, and it's not just bands, isn't it? You're looking for artists who feel something, a gap in your life, something that you need to try and make sense of things. Yeah, I do feel that. And for, for a lot of sort of disaffected, disillusioned working class kids and that time, Paul really, he made sense of things for us. Mm. Um, and, and, um, yeah, we appreciated it. Now in the book, you also, we finish off with your stand up comedy. Yeah. And here we are, what, 30 years later? Since I've been doing it, 31, yeah. yeah. 31 years as a stand-up comedian, right? So, um, I mean, obviously you still love that. It's Again, it's it's a bit like being a musician. You see that Paul's kind of involved and it's just the more hours you put in, the better and better you get at it, right? Yeah, as long as you're creative, as long as you keep working. You know, I go to Edinburgh each year and I write a new show and I try and make it the best I can and, and and make it and keep it relevant. And if you do that, you know, you can do it forever and then you never have to get a proper job. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, that really is the sole reason all of this is happening, to be honest with you. Um, but I, uh, you know, I mean, that is a joke, but it also isn't a joke as well, to be honest. I do love it. And I really, I wanted to say that in the book, that he opened those doors for me. I mean, obviously, there was still a number of steps I had to take and a number of other people that I had to meet, not least my missus, before any of this sort of stuff would happen. But he was the first person, really, who open my eyes to the possibility of something other than just a sort of a domestic drudgery, I suppose you could call it. Yeah. Don't fuck for that. <laughs> Two final questions before you go. And I have to say, yeah. folks, you should read the book. It's a fabulous read, honestly. We'll put all the details in the show notes. It's a really, really brilliant read. Um, two final questions for you. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be The Jam, The Star Council or Solo. What would you go with? Tube Station. Straight in there, I mean, I've been asked this. I mean, listen, you're not the first person to ask me this, and I have had to think about it, but Tube Station, I loved it. I love the depiction of London. I like the sound of the tube train. I've stood on that platform. Uh, I love the storytelling in that book. What we were talking about at the start of the uh, podcast, storytelling, and it is a story. You know, yeah, it's such a visual song, though, isn't it? It is a visual song, and you can, you know, maybe question why you would buy a takeaway curry and then get on the tube. Just go to a curry house closer to home. But putting that aside, I love that song. I love the confidence of that song and the imagery, smell of pubs and wormwood scrubs and too many right wing meetings. All of that, I loved it. I, I still love it, and it's funny because it was on, um, it was playing on on the radio. I was driving with my eldest. At the end of it, he looked at me. He went, "You know." You know every single syllable and note of that song. I said everything. Every, of course I do. Of course I do. So yeah, that that's the one I'm having. Nice, nice. Um, final question then. So the purpose of this podcast, as you'll know, is to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It's my one big regret from giving up my life as a radio presenter that I never got to interview Weller. So I've created a podcast to make it happen. <laughs> We're on our way. Yeah, so yeah. uh, under sixty odd episodes, you know, if it happens. 
What should I ask him, Ian? <laughs> really? That's what you want to know. What you get? What you should ask Paul Weller? Well, why is it taking you 160 episodes to talk to me? Maybe you could ask him that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, surely this is a question for you, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is. is a question. <laughs> I mean, all right. If you want me to, um, you know, you could say, "Why did you split up the jam?" But I, we know, we know those things. He's been asked these questions a lot of times. I don't know. Might be interesting to ask him. Ask him what drives him. Really, what, 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 what's, what's the motivation at this point? I mean, he might say the same as me, not after, not after work. But he's never had a proper job, has he? To be honest, I have. But he's been doing this since he was a kid. Uh, but maybe that. What's, what's driving you at this point? I mean, you're Paul Weller. You're the mod father. You don't need to do any of this anymore. But, but he obviously does. So what, what's, what's going on? You know, especially from someone who came from such a, what seemed like such a stable family, you know, a loving family, which is, if you read the book, not where I came from. And so I know that's what's driving me is, you know, run away from that as fast as I can for as long as I can. But with him, he came from a loving family. His dad was driving him about and booking him gigs. And yet he still had all that anger. And so uh, I'd, I'd like to know that, really. That's great. Hey, Ian, thank you so much for your time, man. I really love chatting with you. Uh, it's been a real joy. Like I say, the book's fabulous. We'll put details in the show notes for people who to check it out if they haven't done already. But thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Well, there you go. My thanks once again to the fabulous Ian Stone for giving up his time for the podcast. Do head to my website. You can find out more details about the book and Ian's career in comedy. Just head to paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, on the website, you can head into my store, find our official merchandise. Maybe you want to get your pin badge, your official podcast mug, T-shirts, phone covers, sweatshirts, whatever, all available in our store. And whilst you're there, if you fancy it, you can buy a virtual coffee as well. Doing that this week. Hello to Steve Perry, who says, A fabulous show, Dan. I've been listening from episode one. Love listening to all the amazing guests with their stories. Thank you for all the research you do to ask such great questions of your guests, which makes for essential listening for all Paul Weller fans. Well, thank you, Steve. Much appreciated. Hello to Grant. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee, sir. Hello, Duncan. Hi, Ian. Hello to Sean Wilson. Hello to Rich Gill. Hey, John Reed. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee once again. Peter E. Much appreciated. Hello to Jamie Hunter, who says, Hi, Dan. Your warm personality comes across so well on these brilliant podcasts that really put your guests at ease. Not to mention all the hard work that you're putting in. It's much appreciated. Thank you. Well, cheers, Jamie. Thanks to you for your message. If you want to get involved, just head online, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. You can get in touch on social media. You'll find me on Twitter or X or whatever it's called, it's at Weller Fan Pod, or on Facebook and Instagram, just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. On the next episode of the podcast, another very special conversation, a fabulous guest coming up. We're going to be talking to singer, songwriter, musician, Billy Sullivan on the podcast, talking about his love of the jam, Paul Weller, the Spitfires, his solo career, and more on the next episode of Desperately Seeking Paul. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 